the 455 go train into Toronto on a Monday morning is is just a terrifying place. It is the depths of <laughs> it's the depths of hell. It's this it's the saddest people on earth. It really is. Because nobody wants to be on a train at 455. If your life has got you to a place where you are on a train at 455 a.m., something's gone horribly wrong or you're doing work you don't want to do. <laughs> this is kind of where I stand on that. <laughs> anyway. For those tough wake-ups. Stats are misleading. It's Martian Mellow. Major foul. Wake up to serious sports talk. He fist his head. It's Marsh. The CFL, baby. And Mellow. I love Canada. It's Marsh and Mellow. This is football. For those tough wake-ups. They're heating up. It's Marsh and Mellow. Coming your way, Hamilton. Wake up to serious sports talk. Gas tank on before. It's Marsh. In Canada. And Mellow. Why not, eh? It's Marsh and Mellow. Thank you, Canada. Everybody's doing it. The more I listen to that intro, the more aggressive it seems. Just hearing Corey Chamberlain scream, this is football at me. I'm like, <laughs> like that's kind of a rude awakening on a on a Monday morning. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for being here with us on Marsh and Mellow. As always, we appreciate it. He is at Kyle underscore Mellow underscore. I'm at TSN underscore Marsh. We are at Marsh and Mellow, and we are on at CF Perspective, Canadian football perspective for you here at the conclusion of week number 12. That's right. You have been watching football for three months straight my friends congratulations to everybody who's made it all the way through week 12 having yourself a time here in the canadian football league as we make our way through 2021 a uh, bit of a grind at this point not gonna lie but it's a little refreshing that usually week 12 we're like hey it's labor day this year we're like hey there's like three weeks left <laughs> so uh 13 14 15 16 is what we have got left on the table at this point and uh, the season chugging along lots of fun storylines we got it all covered for you here as always and we'll dive into all of them but first we got to let you know that our good friends at fox 40 have got you covered if you are getting back into the game don't forget to involve them in that process the canadian football perspective podcast brought to you by our friends at fox 40 the worldwide leaders in whistle technology for all of your whistle needs and much much more just go to fox 40 shop.com they're the best in the biz and one of the best breweries in all of Ontario has decided to help us out as well as they've got themselves a great promo code CFL for you get your free shipping on your first order over $100. Sawdust City Brewing up in Gravenhurst, Ontario. God's country, as they like to say. Uh, they will get you great deals and, of course, great, great beer. I would love if I could have one of their coffee stouts, not going to lie, on a Monday morning. I feel like that would be better. <laughs> that would be better than the coffee that I just made a couple of minutes ago that before we hopped on, I was telling Kyle Mello, I'm not good at making coffee. Uh, it was just a Keurig situation. It wasn't like a French press or any of those fancy things that people use, Kyle. But uh, but nice to have Sawdust City and Fox 40 here helping us out as we make our way throughout the Canadian Football League season. I got to see you. I got to see you in the flesh uh, on Saturday <laughs> afternoon. It was weird. You tapped me on the shoulder. I turned around and I went, who is this person I've been talking to for months via Zoom? Uh, I stood in the doorway and I just said, wow, they're letting anybody do broadcasts now. That's... And you didn't hear me. So that's when I tapped. You no, on the I, shoulder. Yeah. Yeah. When you, when you tapped me and said that to me again, I just kind of laughed. Cause I was like, yeah, I mean, you're not wrong. Like, it's done I didn't even out. know you were going to be down there. Um, I like to not, uh, you know, not 
pump it up too much on the old social media machine and be like, I've got the Ticats. This is going to be the greatest game ever. This blah, blah, blah. So I, I like to lay low a little bit. Just be like, hey. yeah. And I, then I, just, the- I show up at games. My hope is that if I lay low and you, I don't despise me. Uh, <laughs> that that if the game comes on and you hear that it's me calling it, you go, oh, that's fun, and then maybe you get excited because if I say to you ahead of time, maybe maybe you don't get as excited when you hear my voice. Just trying to you know make you have a nice little time on your Saturday afternoon. Yeah, I uh, I got to the stadium a little bit later than I usually do. Same and <laughs> didn't love that. Did not love showing up later. I and I'm I like to show up like five hours early. I got there two hours early and I was pissed. So <laughs> and. I was in the press box and somebody walked by me and they're like, I just had a conversation with Marshall. I'm like, huh? He's here. <laughs> yeah. He's doing the game on TV. I'm like, I had no clue. So that's when I went over to the TV studio. Say hi. Good. That's cool. That's cool. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting, man. Like I was talking to a couple of people that were asking, Hey, how's it going? You know, are you enjoying calling the games? And man, I love calling these games so much, but I'll be honest with you. I really appreciate a the tsn higher-ups and b the fans the viewers the consumers who uh have been so kind but more than being kind because it's easy to be kind like it's the simplest thing is to just be like hey good for you the the tough thing is that when you don't love the way that someone's doing something to just give you time and that's what i've been given here with some of these games is to kind of find my footing and i was texting you last night kyle because we were kind of going back and forth on how this game specifically went in the call. And I'm like, every game I'm learning is so different. Like depending on yeah. the game situation, the score, how many explosive plays there are in the game, the storylines of the game going in, how the game changes throughout the game, how the weather affects the game, the people that you're working with in the truck, the people that you're working with in the booth. Like it is, it is every single game is a snowflake. It is so, so different. And, uh, and I came out of this game uh loving working with Dunnigan it was so much fun like that guy is an absolute riot and during the scariest thing about working with Dunnigan and people probably assume this the scariest thing is that during the commercial breaks he just wants to talk football and he has (laughs) he has no idea when we're coming back from the break what we're doing when we come back from the break because he just wants to talk football and you might say like oh that's terrible to work with in television I love it because we would go to break and he would say I mean, Caleb's got to see the cover too. I mean, he got the safety rolling over the top right there, Martian. I mean, the linebackers flying <laughs> out, linebackers flying out to the flats. I know you saw it. You called it. I mean, he's you know he's standing flat-footed and he's got to flip his. And meanwhile, in my other ear, I've got Mike Marshall, our producer, going, "Okay, guys, when we come back, we're going to have a visual up here of Caleb Evans in his last three weeks, and then on the back end, we've got a tag, little sideline shot of uh, of Doc Hodges, and Matthew is down on the sideline, Shinetti ready with a report on kind of the future of the Ottawa quarterbacking situation. So I've got that in one ear, and in the other, I've got. I mean, they got a blitz. They got a blitz. They got to get after it. And he's, so <laughs> it's so much fun. And and then the producer will be like, "Okay, guys, back in thirty, and he's still Dunnigan's going off. Back in fifteen. Maddie's still talking football 10 and he's, he's not even wrapping his thought. He's like, and another thing. And then, <laughs> and then it hits like three, two. And he's like, ah, anyways. And he just, st- <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and he just stops like inside five seconds. And it's, it, it's slightly terrifying. And there were a couple of times where I had to tap and be like, Hey, we're coming back kind of thing. But it's like, at the same time, he knows, he knows, he just, he, he knows how to fit perfectly inside those windows. And me is like, 
the new guy, the rookie, I'm tapping him and being like, Hey man, man like we got to chill. We got, and he's like, I know what I'm doing. It's fine. So, uh, that was super fun. Uh, there's some lots of little things I want to work on to, to be better for you, for the CFL fans, uh, to improve the call. And I'm chipping away at those things a little bit by bit, but, uh, but I, I just wanted to say, I do appreciate. And the, the other thing, so this is my first time calling a game in Hamilton, uh, which subsequently means it's my first time being at Tim Hortons field this year, because I haven't been down to any other games and I don't really go to games that I don't call these days because I got other stuff going on. So, uh, I ended up waking up and I kind of had this vibe on Friday the Kyle that it would feel a little bit different to call a game in Hamilton and uh, I was really excited and I was just I I kind of thought it would be surreal and be because for five six years I'm standing down in the radio booth which has this huge glass wall in front of it you don't even really feel like you're part of the stadium and the TV booth in Hamilton is it's wide and beautiful and you're right at midfield and you're overlooking all the action and it's open air and um and I, I really thought that it would feel special and it did. But then as the game got closer and closer, there was like this overwhelming two things, sense of gratitude and also a sense of gravity of, man, wow, I can't believe like, cause I, I know how many people there are in the stands of, I don't even, do you know what the attendance was? For uh, 20,112, I think. Okay. So 20,000 people. And this is not in some weird way, like a humble brag or a weird stat I'm pulling out of my backside. I'm just saying there's probably a thousand people out of those 20,000 that you and I have interacted with during our time covering the Ticats, being around the stadium, being yeah. at, being at practice, being in the community. Uh, for me, being a football guy that went to McMaster, like there's that branch of connections and stuff. So the idea that I'm standing there and my voice is the one that gets to paint the game for you even though the people in the stands aren't hearing it it's like i feel a responsibility to those people not just the thousand that i know but the full twenty thousand. yeah but those thousand people that are down there it's like i want to make them proud i want to do this in a way that they can say hey i know i know that guy i work with that guy so um there was this sense of gravity but it was also that gratitude feeling of looking around and going man this is a place that i really started to fall in love with the canadian football league because when i'm at mcmaster i'll be honest i didn't really give a damn about the cfl and that might seem weird to people. Like I would watch a lot of games and follow it and all the rest, but I didn't really know what the CFL was about. I didn't really understand the game. I was just a stupid university student running around, drinking beers, playing football, going to class. And then when I got hired by TSN radio in Hamilton and started working with you, we would go down to practice all the time. And it's like, that's where I started to understand, oh, that's how this game is played on and off the field. Yeah. So so to be back in that place where I kind of, and it's not about liking the Ticats more than your team. I don't give a damn about who wins, who loses. I say that all the time. It just, it doesn't matter to me. But being in that stadium, that that chunk of land has a special place in my heart. And to be the one person with the microphone calling the action, standing up top there, it was a heavy feeling and it, and I thought it was going to be very joyous. And as it got closer and closer to game time, I'm like, okay, I like this, but also, man, this, this is a lot to take in being up here in this position. And, uh, anyways, it's a very long winded, stupid rambling way of me saying, I hope you enjoyed the call. And I hope that everybody had a fantastic time and we're going to recap all the games for you here. So I'll stop being self-indulgent. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Um, that, that's interesting that you didn't really, cover the CFL when you were working or when you were playing at McMaster, Mm -hmm. um, did it come more of a thing for you when you went to Stampeders training camp? So 
Yes and no. Um, for me, it's interesting. When I was in high school, I worked at Pizza Pizza in Kingston, uh, right on the corner of where my, my high school was. And I was working the front cash and I would work uh, basically from four o'clock until the dinner rush was down every Friday and every Saturday, which usually was like eight o'clock, nine o'clock at the latest kind of thing. And I was allowed, this is probably bad, but I was allowed uh, from the people that, that employed me to just take a meal, whatever I wanted. Was that three slices of pizza? Was that chicken bites? Was that whatever? Yeah. And so every Friday and every Saturday when I was in high school, I would uh, take, you know, a meal home, go down in my basement, which I had the whole basement to myself when I was in high school with my broom down there and a television, all this stuff. And I would sit and I would watch every single CFL game. It became this addiction for me where it was, I've always loved the Buffalo Bills and watched the NFL on Sundays. And then as mm -hmm. you become older, you become more aware. And then you start to know people who are around the CFL and involved in it. And so I fell in love with watching it when I was in high school, which helped, I think, accentuate my love for playing the game. But then I became so focused on playing. And you got to realize too, the timeline on stuff is that in the summer months, yeah, the CFL is playing games. And once in a while, we would go down to Ivor Wynn or Tim Hortons Field. But in the summer months, we're training and we're working and taking summer classes. And uh, it, there's not a whole lot of time for me to, like, catch every single game all the time. So you kind of fall out of touch with it. And that's why when I went to Stampeders training camp in 2013, it made me more aware of Calgary. And it educated my view even further on what the league's really about. But it was really when I first started covering them on sidelines pre halftime and post in 2015, my first year out of university that I started to get a sense for, Oh, okay. This is like, I didn't really understand this league. I thought I did. I thought, I, and it's funny too, because 2016 me, and this is probably the same for you, Kyle, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, but 2016 me was way more educated than 2015 me 2017 me was way more educated than 2016 me and on and on and on and on yeah it's like every single year you understand the game differently you understand the league differently you, there's little chunks and pieces that educate you and so you go into the next year and you understand and that's just the stuff that comes with time and effort and exposure and being around it and i mean hell you're you're not calling the ticats games on tsn but you're at all the ticats games and you're watching all the cfl games and so yeah. ne next year you will be better off for that as well because you will feel uh, more educated and, and a more depth of knowledge i would say from being around the game it's just natural it's the way we all evolve right yeah and it's not only just you know because i didn't start covering the team until 2017 when me and you started uh, rolling with marshmallow yeah uh 2015 i was just a part-timer at tsn uh, 2016 uh, season, I was producing uh, all the Ticats games. So I was always in studio uh, for those games. And then 2017, uh, when we got the show, um, I was already down at the games in 2017. And then our show started kind of right when um, middle of the season, you know, just after Labor Day. Um, and I started going to practice and mm -hmm. I didn't really understand the CFL probably looking back on it until I started going to practice. And it's not even just looking at what the team's working on and things like that. It's being around the people of the CFL that cover the CFL. I've been covering the CFL for a long time, Steve Milton as well. Yeah. Um, and just talking to Steve for so long, every single day, 
I was like, oh, that didn't realize that. There's things in the CFL like you don't realize, like salary capital implications, right? Oh, and now that's why I'm able in 2021 to you know come on this platform and say, why aren't the Ticats fixing problems, certain problems they have on the roster? Oh, they, they got no money. That's why they haven't done anything, right? And I look back on that and I think, I was kind of ignorant when I stepped into this trying to, because I grew up a fan of the CFL and I grew up a fan of the Ticats that I had all these preconceived notions of what I thought the game of CFL football was. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of wrong. Uh, <laughs> I was yeah, kind of wrong. One of the first learnings I had that really was like a thunderbolt to the side of the head was when coach John Salavantis, who showed up in the press, bo- uh, press box, press booth, uh, on Saturday afternoon, wearing what most people would term a vintage Ticats starter jacket. Uh, it's just his jacket. He's had it since 1986. Uh, <laughs> so it's it's not really vintage. It's not throwback. It's just a Is thing. Is this that... sweater uh, uh, yeah, going that was, into the that, game? That was pretty cool, too. Yeah. Where do you get that? I don't know. There's there's places around. Simone has hookups for vintage uh, yeah. t-shirt places. So, somebody <laughs> from a vintage place probably DM. There's actually a vintage clothing place in Westdale. I saw that selling uh, a Chicago Bulls 1998 NBA Finals champion t-shirt like vintage old sports clothing but the t-shirt with the Bulls championship stuff is a hundred dollars for a cotton t-shirt I'm like "Mm, I don't think they have to ask a premium they've been holding on to that for a long time (laughs) I guess but uh, the thing that struck me with with coach Sal he told me way back in the day was 2015 i think it was eric norwood is that name a defensive end that yeah eric norwood i remember so eric norwood went down with injury in comes arnold gascon and don and the ratio changes and they have to play a canadian there and, and coach sal says to me after the game why do you think ottawa started running it so much no i don't know they were having success so why not keep doing it no they started running it because a guy who weighs 50 pounds less and doesn't really look like a defensive end came into the game because the ratio rules required that he had to play in that spot yeah and i'm like Huh. Okay. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> that makes more, that makes more sense. So, um, and that was another one of those things that kind of leads into that. But anyways, let's, let's, uh, focus on week number 12 around the Canadian football league here. We don't want to keep this podcast too long because it was, uh, uh there was lots of stuff that was going on and I want to dive into it here. So let's go back to Friday evening. The Argos, um, uh, and the East division is very, very interesting right now at the top for obvious reasons because the records are all tied up at six and four between Montreal and Toronto. Montreal playing at home, played some inspired football. Matthew Schultz ends up getting the victory. Trevor Harris not yet into that starting role as I think a lot of people assume he will be. Uh, but in this game, Schultz ends up only completing 12 passes, but they put up 37 points. Why? William Stanback, 24 carries, 203 yards, one touchdown, had a long run of 65. Schiltz, it's funny, on his 12 completions, two of them were touchdowns. That's a ridiculously high percentage of your passes that go for touchdowns. <laughs> uh, but he ends up running an offense. I looked it up this morning, Kyle, when I was charting some stuff on the way in, that he ends up essentially running an offense that is calling pass plays 41% of the time in this game. And I wondered when Schultz came in whether or not they would lean heavy on the running game. A couple of games in, that's the way that it looks. I understand yeah. time, time and score certainly changed that as well because they were just trying to run the clock and protect the ball and all the rest. But to see Schultz with only 18 attempts and to see McLeod Bethel-Thompson with 40, 40, but he had four interceptions as well out of those 40 attempts, 
this was a lopsided victory for Montreal. Toronto couldn't stop the run, and Toronto tried to throw their way back into it. They just couldn't. Do you think at any point this season the Argos are going to run it back and put Nick Arbuckle in if he's healthy? I struggle with this. This is an interesting question uh, because I see Nick as having man, it's so tough. Nick has so much potential and I like him and I like his game, but McLeod is, he just refuses to quit. Like McLeod Bethel Thompson's energy. And even when he's throwing four interceptions and he's, you know, freaking out on the odd receiver because he's very passionate on the field, which I love makes for great gift content. Uh, <laughs> anytime that I see the ups and the downs of McLeod Bethel Thompson, yeah. and this is obviously a down, I think to myself, I've seen this story before. He has the down, and then he bounces back inevitably. So they could, I mean, going into this game, which I'll be calling with Matt Donegan, uh, it is Toronto against BC on Saturday afternoon this coming week. I could totally see Nick Arbuckle being, if he's healthy, being up and getting an opportunity. And But again, Toronto is such a conundrum to try and analyze because they feel so different week to week to week. But at home, they've been very, very similar most of their games, and they've had a lot of success at home. So I, Nick, my, my synopsis as I dance around this is Nick deserves a chance. Nick is good enough to start. Nick probably should be starting, but McLeod just won't quit. And when McLeod goes up and down and up and down and up and down, it doesn't matter because his ups are good enough for you to respect it and want him in there. And his downs, for me, I used to go, oh, he's awful. He's never going to be able to do this. And now I look at his downs as, well, it's just a blip in the road. He's going to have another up because that's what he does because it's, yeah. you got to ride the wave with him. It's interesting. And the reason why I bring up that point about Nick Arbuckle potentially stepping back into the starting job mm-hmm. is because I wrote on CF Perspective this week when I was breaking down this game from the gambling uh, side of things, I said, McLeod Bethel Thompson is essentially, if he would have went out in this game against Montreal and had a good performance and the Argos won, I wouldn't have been surprised if Dinwiddie just said publicly, Hey, this is your, this is your team, you know, from here on out. Well, didn't they say that when Arbuckle was allegedly on the trade block? like was being offered up in some of those discussions with Montreal and potentially with Edmonton. And the, the idea that that would come out, I don't think that that's incredible journalistic reporting and investigative journalism. I think somebody leaked that. And for them to leak that, I'm like, what, what the hell are you doing to Nick? What did Nick do to you? Like, and, and the idea that Nick Arbuckle would be able to play on three of the four teams in the East Division over a two-year span and barely play for any of them yeah. when he was involved in those Montreal discussions, I was like, this is crazy that he is he is not being trusted. And even if he is being trusted, he can't stay healthy, and that's being held against him at this point. So it's frustrating for me not to see Nick on the field, which, by the way, did you see the pythons on that guy? <laughs> Like on the sideline in the Montreal game, it's cold and all, but I got to, okay. I, I got to leave myself a note here for a second after we finish our conversation about Montreal Toronto. Cause I got, I got something to say about people wearing balaclavas in late October. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but Nick is on the sidelines wearing a muscle shirt and I, he is, he's built like a fullback. It's, ama- it's amazing that his shoulder has enough mobility to be able to throw. And I've talked with Matthew Shinetti about Nick's workout regimen. We all know at this point. Shinetti follows him. Yeah, that's true. Uh, <laughs> Shinetti's in great shape too. I don't think people realize how jacked Matt is. But uh, but when I 
when I talked to Matt about it, he said, well, his mom obviously uh, passing away at a young age. If you saw the story on Bell Let's Talk Day last year, Shinetti did a special mm-hmm. feature on SportsCenter. It was really emotional. And uh, and for me as a new parent, honestly, it made me tear up watching it because it was just like the connection of parent to child and the way that Nick talks about it still to this day is very difficult. But his way of coping with that is working out and always has mm-hmm. been working out. And he works out relentlessly to the point where it hurts him. Like he, he gets dinged trying to push himself and you can see that his body is just, it rock solid. And like, he is such a strong guy. Uh, but the idea of, of him not being able to get on the field with the amount of work that he puts in to me is frustrating because he deserves an opportunity. And I don't know why he's not really being given. And maybe I'm just holding that Maybe it's a set of circumstances that's out of his control. Maybe he is being trusted and maybe Ottawa, Paul Appelese really just wanted to work with Matt Nichols. We know how that worked too. Maybe in Toronto, they really do want him to be the franchise guy, but he's been injured and McLeod Bethel Thompson is playing some decent football from week to week. So it's like, I don't want to create this grand narrative that like nobody trusts Nick Arbuckle and he's being screwed over and there's somebody out there in the league who's out to get him or but it's just, it's frustrating to not see him on the field because I like watching him play and he's proven that he can play when given the opportunity and when healthy. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, McLeod Bethel-Thompson goes out and obviously he struggles, uh, you know, four interceptions on the day. But I don't think this loss was on McLeod. I mean, Didn't... you turn over the ball four times. It's, it's probably on you, a large part of it. But defensively, for everything we thought about the Argos up until this point, William Stanback just punched that in the face. <laughs> yeah, well, and to the point of the running backs, like when Toronto beat Winnipeg, who looks unbeatable at this point in the season, they were running up and down the field, and it was the dual punch of John White and DJ Foster. Well, in this game, DJ Foster had three carries for five yards. Like That was it. That was it. The entire game was three carries for five yards, and John White had four carries for 20 yards. Yeah. But, so the idea of how Toronto wants to play this game, maybe time score situation didn't allow for it, but it was an interesting setup because I think we should remember this one if Toronto gets to the Great Cup and plays against Winnipeg. Because when you, ha- well, <laughs> I find it, it funny that you're penciling in Winnipeg. No, well, well, yeah, that too. But <laughs> but I'm just saying, if if Winnipeg gets there, we know what Winnipeg wants to do. We've talked about it throughout the season. Maximum yeah. tw- maximum 25 passing attempts. They want to run the ball with Andrew Harris behind their big offensive line, hit some play action, and make some touchdown shots to Kenny Lawler. That's their formula on offense. Well, what you just saw here from Montreal was run the ball with William Stanback, 24 carries and go play action, hit a couple of shots down the field to their big play receiver, which is Gino Lewis. Seven targets, seven receptions, two touchdowns, 156 yards. He basically played the role of Kenny Lawler. William Stanback basically played the role of Andrew Harris. And what did Toronto do in response? Oh, let's throw the ball 40 times. Yeah, It was, it was like, that's not really who you are. And so they got forced out of their comfort zone. And it makes me wonder if Toronto does make their way through the East and does make it to a great cup. And and I know there's a lot of ifs in this, but if they make it to the great cup and they play Winnipeg, if Winnipeg is controlling the time of possession and is controlling the ground game, would Toronto freak out and uh, let's start throwing it everywhere. Or would they be able to fight their way into the game with what has got them to this point, which has been the dual running back setup or efficiently running the football. I don't know the answer to that. I just think this Montreal game was an interesting look into how Toronto responds to 
being taken out of their comfort zone in, in the style and the game plan they want to use. Yeah, it's always score that kind of dictates too on how the rhythm of the game is going along mm-hmm. and whether or not you stick to your game plan. And for the Toronto Argonauts, what was it? Down 21-10 at halftime and Montreal didn't let up in the third quarter. And it's like, okay, now we're trying to chase the game. Yeah. Um, so for Toronto getting off to a better start and putting up points early in the game, because uh, I thought in the first quarter, you know, the Argos get out of the quarter, they're up 3 nothing, But that's when your offense should have put up some, some scores just so you can get ahead of things and you can stick to that run game. And, you know, you look at the, the, the rushing statistics in the game, John white, only what 20 yards rushing. And it's like, well, if you're going to do that, then you're going to put all the pressure on your quarterback and McLeod Bethel Thompson for as good of a backup as I think he is. Um, And as at times uh, a, a good quarterback that can sling it. But when you're a slinger, it also goes the other way too. Um, and, and I just thought that's what happened Friday night. Yep, yep, no doubt on that. Uh, I also want to give just a quick shout out here to Arjun Colhoum. I, I don't know Arjun at all, but uh, that injury to his ankle lower leg looked pretty nasty. And there was the pause in the game and they had to bring out the stretcher. to. I assume it was an air cast situation and probably surgery involved. It looked like a broken ankle. It, I mean, the leg was just completely wrapped the wrong direction. So Hate to see that. Hate to see that for the Canadian guys. And uh, I was thinking about him a little bit through the weekend. So I hope that um, that is not uh, something that's going to damage his ability to continue to play football because he's bounced around a little bit, been a good depth guy and played lots of specials. And again, I don't know Mm -hmm. the guy, but I just I hope that that uh, that is not too, too severe of an injury. Uh, Game number two of the weekend is the one that Kyle and I were both at. Uh, man, it was fun to see Tim Hortons field that full, wasn't it? Yeah, the crowd was fantastic. I thought there was a lot of energy in there. Not sold out though. No, but it was, that's something that we've seen everywhere. And I saw a tweet this week, uh, that was mentioning, I don't know if it was the Leafs and the Raptors or if it was the Flames and the Oilers, or it was basically people saying like in Saskatchewan, they haven't had sellouts. I heard someone say in Edmonton that, uh, there's been this disconnect between the old fan base uh, that wanted to keep them as the old team name and the old logo and all this and the new generation, the transition into becoming the Elks. And so people will still buy their season tickets. They just won't go to the games. And so you just end up with a bunch of empty seats at those. You pick games. and choose what games they go to. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, they're more selective because the team isn't great. And then, Oh, I don't want to waste my night with this team, but I bought season tickets because the deal is good or whatever. And so I don't think that that's exclusive to Hamilton. And I don't think it's exclusive to the CFL. We're seeing this all over the sports landscape right now. Maybe the NFL is the one thing that's able to break through and make none of that stuff matter because the NFL is just a drug that people cannot unhook themselves from the IV of. Uh, And so they, they seem to be immune to this as they do to a lot of other things. But I thought the energy inside the stadium was great. Uh, It was great to see. Jeremiah Masoli pieced together one of those good Masoli days. Uh, and when I say that, it's because I've always talked about Jeremiah as good Masoli, bad Masoli. And the good Masoli is high completion percentage, hit a couple of, uh, of touchdown shots, use your legs a little bit. And you can just get a sense when he's in a rhythm and when his footwork is good. And sometimes he still throws off his back foot. And sometimes he still makes you scratch your head with the odd decision. But if he can make one or two great plays, it usually can can counteract any of those throw off your back foot sliding sideways and all the rest or trying yeah. to get away from a sack and make a play you don't need to. Uh, the thing I thought was really interesting was in our Zoom call leading into this game, Jeremiah's whole mentality was simply put, and I, I think I mentioned this on the broadcast, but he said to us, 
at one point, you know, we're bouncing back and forth on rhythm and where you're at and trying to find chemistry with your receivers and stuff. And he just kind of stopped at one point and, and we asked him about the Grey Cup signage going up around the stadium and around Hamilton soon. And will that add some extra gravity to it? And will it start to become real that there's a home Grey Cup for you guys potentially? And he just said, it's time. He's like, it's time. It's time to go. Like we, we've been messing around and figuring it out and dealing with injuries and uh, roster construction, all this stuff all year. And you get the sense, and I'm not a, I'm not a huge fan of this, uh, this expression, but you get the sense that in the Ticats locker room right now, they're saying it's nut crunching time, boys. It <laughs> is, it is time to go. It is. They, they realize really heavily right now that it's do or die. And I think that's because, everybody myself included predicted at the start of the season that they would be at the top of the east like probably running away and Derek Taylor was saying I don't know if they lose a game this year they might run the table well week one they lose to Winnipeg and we all see how the season shakes out from there yeah. uh, but to see the way that Hamilton played in this game and I get it it's Ottawa they've struggled worst offense coming in we're uh, one of the worst defenses coming in. but they played with a sense of urgency I thought in this game that said to me going forward, they are, they're pretty locked in. And I think it's because they're looking at the standings and they're seeing, Oh, there's not just one team ahead of us. There's two teams uh, ahead of us. And yeah. we, we only have a couple of games left to get to the top where we can host even in an East semifinal, let alone an East final, let alone get to the gray cup, which we're all expecting to try and be there because we thought at the start of the year, we would absolutely come out of the East and be in the home gray cup. So there is a sense of urgency around the black and gold right now that I haven't felt in my time covering this team. So as we, you know, head down the home stretch here of the regular season, it looks more and more with every passing week that there's not going to be a crossover this year. Right. Uh, just BC kind of looks dead in the water. Yeah. BC <laughs> um, was the threat, right? Like yeah, BC is the threat. Edmonton was out of the question and BC was the threat. And now BC is just one of the most disappointing yeah. things I've ever seen. We'll get to them in a couple of minutes, but yeah. yeah, the crossover doesn't look like a real threat. Right. Now. Right. So if you're Hamilton, you have a potential to at least stay in the East for those playoff games. And, you know, after the result on Friday night with Montreal beating Toronto, I was talking to somebody and they said two home games left. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, after this two home games left. He's like, uh, I don't think we're going to see a, a home playoff game for the Ticats until a potential, you know, great cup. And I was like, huh, if I'm Hamilton, look, I'm not scared of anybody if I have to go on the road. Um, but if you're playing Montreal or Toronto, I think you're put in a better position, uh, put yourself in a better position to, to potentially, you know, go out and put a good performance uh, on the field and, and win a game and, and move on and, you know, get one step closer to the great cup. I just want to preface this with, we have to take the opponent into consideration. The Ticats look fantastic. You don't know a team's bad until you see them in person. Boy, Ottawa was bad. <laughs> it was the yeah. first time I got to see him this year uh, in person. And look, Caleb Evans, what he start the game? 12 of 13 passing. And I'm like, yeah, again, it's check down city. And when it's check down city, you can you know rack up that completion percentage. It's are you threatening enough 
and they weren't threatening at all. They couldn't run the ball. And when they were throwing the ball, they struggled to protect. Taggart's defensive line got after it. Um, and then just defensively, I think the spirit that I probably talked about a month ago or so on this show about Ottawa and how, man, that defense plays hard for McBenavides. I, I, I didn't see that on Saturday. And, and you know the way it is, right? When you're losing games, it gets harder. Everything gets harder. Yeah. Waking up in the morning to go to practice is harder. Paying attention in meetings is harder because it's like, what the hell's the damn point? We suck anyways, right? Like that is the difficult part. And for Jeremiah Masoli, look, thrilled for Jeremiah that he, he finally yeah. had a performance that he wanted to have. Um, to be honest, I was more impressed with, with Jeremiah, his ability in the fourth quarter, because you know the way it is, right? Hamilton, again, led by a boatload of points after the third quarter. And I was thinking, oh, last two home games, Tycats led after three quarters and then just let it fall Seven, apart. I think it was 15-3 in one game and 13-2 to in the other going into the fourth. They lost both of them was the stat that I had when I was doing the prep for the game. So, yeah, I mentioned that on the broadcast going into the fourth. I'm like, well, now's the time to prove it. Yeah, and then Jeremiah came out and there was one throw that he had to, to Speedy probably for 17 yards right over the middle of the field and the Ticats were inside their own five. And I was thinking, okay, Ticats can't go two and out here because if they go two and out, they're probably going to give up a safety just to, you know, win the field position. And Jeremiah comes out and just throws a rope to speedy. And I was like, Ooh, that was probably the best throw I've seen from Jeremiah this year. Just confident in, you know, stepping into the throw. And that's my biggest thing with him. Um, The offensive line I thought was better. I think Vaughn call is there to stay at left tackle. Um, after Murray went on the six game injured list, again, the Ticats for as poor as their offensive line stability has been this year, you always have to account for injuries. And it's like, okay, what are we after injuries? Darius Soraka was a game time decision coming into the game. He plays the first series and then doesn't play the rest of the game. Uh, Yarborough goes in at center. I'm not a big fan of Yarborough and I don't think I would want him playing center for, for the long haul. Um, Yarborough got blown up on that QB sneak attempt by Dane Evans, where Dane Evans kind of just went to the right and just got Yarborough just got pushed back right into Dane. It hit his hip and then it threw the whole playoff. Um, but for the Ticats, I think it was a positive performance. And it, I should mention this too. And it goes back to our first conversation opening the show about knowing the CFL after you start covering the league in depth. Um, so Darius Sirocco goes out after that first series. Well, um, Yarborough, not Canadian. So now the Ticats lose a Canadian and they've substituted an American in. This is after the whole Sean Thomas Erlington and Don Jackson being scratched before the game. And now all of a sudden Malik Irons gets injured and Jackson Bennett, by the way, shout out to Jackson Bennett. I thought he had a hell of a performance. Defensive. <laughs> Defensive back slash linebacker extraordinaire in, in U sports turned into a running back, turned into a third string running back, turned into a second string running back yeah. on the depth chart because of this, turned into a first string running back after injury, <laughs> runs the whole game, has his best game since Labor Day of 2019. It's like, it's the same thing with Johnny Augustine in Winnipeg. It's like, never gets his chance. And when he does every single time, he proves to you, yeah, anybody yeah. could run the ball. To Derek Taylor's point, Derek always says, running backs don't really matter because you can just get any U sports kid that runs hard and you're fine. 
I'm glad, I'm glad DT, uh, you know, echoed those <laughs> sentiments about the quality of uh, running backs uh, or just athletes in Jackson Bennett's case where he yeah. wasn't a running back and now is a running back. And I thought he ran hard, but the thing I was going to mention, Darius Sirocco goes out, Yarborough comes in, you lose a Canadian. Um, and now the Ticats are kind of scrambling for, you know, Canadians and where you can, you know, fit those guys in. I mean, you can always put Tunde Adelicate to one of those other DB spots and Katsatonis could step in at a safety spot. A couple of drives later, Braylon Addison goes down. And when yes. Braylon Addison goes down, the only other two backup receivers the Ticats had was Tyler Cernowski and David Unger. And I'm like, okay, so the Ticats just made up that spot lost by Sirocco going out. Um, so I was like, okay, that's not a thing anymore. Um, so moving forward, I think, for the tie cats, you have to take the positives from this game, but realize you're going to be in for a fight for the rest of the season. And it's going to be a different level of fight than the red blocks off. It's a great point by you about like almost nature's karma, deciding how they were going to deal with that ratio yeah. I- issue. I was, I was some combination of pissed off and sad that Braylon Addison got hurt because he was so fun in that first quarter, like five catches for 95 yards in the first. Yeah, he four was, catches on the first drive. <laughs> he's like, he's so smooth. He's so good in and out of his breaks, and he just can't get fully healthy this year. I really hope he's not done for the year. And then, and then Jeremiah, we didn't know the injury. We, I just saw Jeremiah go down. I didn't know it was his nose. Can't yeah. tell from the press box until I looked at the TV. But I was thinking when Jeremiah was down, I was like, oh, crap. Now Dane's the only quarterback. I'm like, and Braylon Addison's the fill-in quarterback yeah. in case things go sideways, yep. and he's out of the game. Well, I'm like, thought, is Jalen Acklin the fill-in quarterback? Now? Probably. My thought as well was that when Malik Irons went down and Jackson Bennett was the only one, they usually would spell the running back, whoever it is, with a little bit of Braylon Addison, like one or two runs oh, that, a game. that too, yeah. So you take him, and that's the thing, is when Braylon goes down, everyone thinks, oh, he's such a good receiver. It's like, no, he's the Wildcat quarterback. He's going to get two to three rushing attempts per game. He's going to open things up for Speedy B. He's, I mean, there's just, he's so multiple and he plays at such a high level. I'll say this too about short yardage sneaks. You mentioned Yarbrough there getting blown up and Dane. If I'm Ottawa, why, when I see the way that Duck Hodges tries to, tries, and I put in quotation marks, to do the quarterback sneak, why do you try again? It's very obvious he has no He shuffles idea. his feet. <laughs> he doesn't go forwards. No, he goes it's, sideways. It's, it's very obvious he's either never done that in his entire life or, Probably he, not. or he hates doing it and he was actively rebelling in hopes that he wouldn't have to do it anymore. Because that's the worst. When they had those two attempts down the goal line and then they ended up kicking a nine-yard field goal, that's that's the worst attempt at quarterback sneaking I've seen in years. In By the, the way, NFL. why is Lapo calling two Q and again, I, I love Lapo. Why is he calling two QB sneaks well, in a row if he's not going to go for it on third? <laughs> well, here, and here's my thing as well as an extension of the fact that like, it's obvious that dude has no idea what he was doing. When Dane gets stuffed earlier and it ends up being that turnover on downs, I actually said to Matty Dunnigan in the booth, I'm like, why would you not just open it up and, and let it fly on, like throw it? Because, or just run it with your running back. Right, but I, what I'm saying is, if you know that your offensive line, based on Hamilton's situation with the center being changed out, and based on Ottawa's situation with having a, an offensive line that's in tough with their 11th different combination of the season through 12, 13 games, whatever it is, and the idea that uh, you've got a quarterback who's not really comfortable doing this, what is the benefit of just saying, well, the stats say we get a yard, so we should always just put somebody in and plunge forward and hope it's 
it's I understand that it's efficient. I understand the success rate on that stuff. But for me, like I watched Man Campbell for the Detroit Lions yesterday go fake punt, fake punt, onside kick. Like he was just balls to the wall. He I don't need the covered yesterday. Yeah, he's like, he's like, we're 0 6. I don't give a damn. I'm just gonna do whatever. Like, let's just go after it. Lapo yeah. is in the same situation. Ottawa's not going anywhere this year. So why are you like, well, the book says we have to, if you want tape on Duck Hodges, let him throw it twice towards the end zone from the nine yard line. What's the, what's the shame? What's, what's going to be the harm? You're yeah. not going to, you're not going to score. You're going to have to kick a field goal. Cause I guarantee he knew this dude doesn't know how to do this. Like, it's not as though they put him out there in his first rep ever for the Ottawa Red Blacks that short yardage was in that game. They knew. So just yeah. get tape, let him throw it. And later in the game to their credit, it's third and 10 or whatever. And they're in their own end of the field in the fourth quarter. And what did they do? They just kept the offense out and they let him try to throw it. Well, that's that's good because that's coaching tape. That's real life situation. That's where the learning mm-hmm. and the evolution happens. So uh, I was a little bit frustrated by that, that uh, I just I feel like sometimes not even necessarily coaches turn their brain off. I just feel like the CFL as a whole just goes, oh, it's second and two. Let's plunge for. Oh, it's third and one. Let's plunge. For. I'm like, <laughs> I want to get to the point where coaches are looking at it just like going for it on third down or fourth down and late in games where they're like the more dangerous thing that we can do here to really challenge the defense is to just go ahead and throw line up in the shotgun and throw a quick out. And yeah, if you miss, then everybody crushes you for it. But over time you will have more success and you will scare the defense more and keep them more off balance. I just, I hope at some point we get there, even if the math doesn't really support it. Yeah. It was not a good week for a QB sneaks on both sides of the border. The NFL starting with a stupid Josh Allen, try to QB sneak slips (laughs) And, you know, Dawkins does not block at all. Yeah. And then just gets blown up and it was a disaster in that game. Um, I'll, uh, I'll say this about Hamilton in terms of the home playoff date, that person you were talking about. I think Hamilton does finish second in the East. Ahead of Toronto or Montreal? Ahead of Montreal. I think Toronto is going to go three and one over their final four. And the reason that I say that is Toronto is playing at home to BC. They've been very good at home. And I think BC is a wreck right now. So I think Toronto wins yep. this week. Toronto at Ottawa. I think Toronto wins that game. Uh, Hamilton at Toronto. A bit of a toss up. I think Hamilton is more desperate. They probably get that win because of if that. the Ticats win that game, by the way, they get the season series over yes. Toronto because it's going to come down to point differential. And yep. the Ticats point differential is better than the Argos because of Labor Day. Uh, Edmonton at Toronto is that COVID mess up makeup game where Edmonton's going to be playing on short rest after. And Edmonton's got Saskatchewan before that like this is going to be like three days rest essentially for Edmonton to make up this game so I think Toronto wins their final game and I think that they beat Ottawa in Ottawa and against BC at home this week which means they go three and one so I think they're out of the equation I think Toronto wins the east in the standings in terms of Montreal Hamilton here Hamilton has got at Edmonton this week they should win they should win like that's if you're going to make a run here and actually you talk about it being time for Masoli you, be, you better win that game against Edmonton because they're not very good this year. BC at Hamilton. Again, I think Hamilton playing at home against BC, who likely is coming off a loss against Toronto. I don't know if BC is going home in between these two games in Ontario or not, but regardless, they should win that game. So Toronto should be able to get that win, and that means that Hamilton would be 2-0. Hamilton at Toronto is the game I talked about. I think they'll be more desperate. They, yep. want, they want the season series, so that could be 3-0. And then they finish out the season, Saskatchewan at Hamilton. And that, I mean, that's a toss-up. I'm not sure where that's going to land, but 
then I look at Montreal and I know I'm scheduled talk. You're super boring when you're listening to a podcast, (laughs) but I think Hamilton has the ability to go at worst three and one. I think Toronto definitely goes three and one. And then I look at Montreal and Montreal down the stretch here. They have a tough schedule home to Saskatchewan. Yep. Okay. At Winnipeg, depending on what they decide to do, that might be a Sean McGuire game. Uh, And then Winnipeg at Montreal. So those three games, that's tough. I mean, they could go conceivably one and three. If Montreal goes one and three, Hamilton goes three and one, Toronto goes three and one. You've got Toronto winning the East, Hamilton hosting the East semi with the Alouettes coming in with probably Trevor Harris as the starting quarterback at that point, if I were to guess, who came in in a playoff game for Edmonton back in 2019 and Hamilton handled him. And the motivation for Hamilton would be we get a home playoff date here against Montreal. If we, we get win, to sleep at home for the rest get, of the season, we get to sleep at home. If we, yeah. win, if we win this game against Montreal in the East semi, and I know I'm looking a long way down the road. If we win this East semi, we get to go down the road and play against our rivals, Toronto at their house, which Hamilton and Simone and all those dudes that are staples of the Ticats. Friggin- and it's probably a home field advantage. They I hate to say it. They friggin' love playing in Toronto. I know this from being around the Ticats. They love playing at B because they like going in and trying to embarrass the Argos at their place. <laughs> they do. It's just, it's in yeah. their, it's in their DNA. And if they're able to go in there and get the victory against Toronto in Toronto, they're at home for the great cup. So that's why I say, I think they, they are motivated. I think they're locked in. I think Montreal struggles down the stretch based on schedule. I think Hamilton goes three and one. They finish second in the East. I think they beat Montreal in the East semi. And then that Hamilton-Toronto East final is a toss up and holy bleep what a game that is going to be if we get to that point. Yeah. And then uh, the winner of that game gets the right to play Winnipeg and try to handle the Bombers. Uh, I don't know if you want yeah. to talk about the the beatdown of the BC Lions. Uh, um, I, I at just some like... point in that game, I felt bad for BC. I was what, like, what what point of that game did you feel bad? Uh, the opening kickoff. <laughs> no, 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 no. no, after after Winnipeg went up two scores, I was sorry. Like, I was drinking coffee. I wasn't able to laugh at that, or I would have done a spit take. But that was, <laughs> I, I I was I agree. Yeah, uh, it was it was rough, and for. Michael Riley, there was a point earlier this season where I thought BC was turning the corner. Um, and then they're just not. And their pass defense has been brutal this year. I don't know what it is. They they're, they rank worse. I think it was 291 yards before the Winnipeg game um, per game. That's the worst in the CFL. Um, I just, I don't know what's wrong. Like Rick Campbell has gone into BC. I, I thought it was working, but whatever core of strengths the BC Lions have had um, after that lucky whitehead injury, it has completely fallen apart. Yeah. So this is, uh, I actually listened to a podcast the other day on the imposter syndrome, the imposter syndrome. Are you familiar with the imposter syndrome, Kyle? Do you know it every day? Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So the imposter syndrome, I'll look up the official definition for you here, but uh, it was a really interesting podcast. Imposter syndrome is loosely defined as doubting your abilities and feeling a fraud. It disproportionately affects high achieving people who find it difficult to accept their accomplishments. Many question whether they are deserving of accolades. Uh, I am a 30 year old person who's calling games on national television. So I listen to a podcast on the imposter syndrome and how to overcome it. I'm just going to be complete, <laughs> completely transparent with you because I'm like, I don't deserve this shit. I'm like, who gave me this? This is, <laughs> this is way more than I am worthy of. And so uh, when I look at the BC lions, they are a team with so much potential. They, but it's been the things that were successful for them 
when they were lining up to have a great year have disappeared. I can't remember Jordan Williams making a dynamic play in the last month. He was a stud for them the first half of the season at middle linebacker in his rookie year after being drafted first overall. Their defensive backfield that you talk about, they played the ball better than anybody, I thought, through the first half of the season. Like from top to bottom, whether it was Gary Peters or mm-hmm. TJ, TJ Lee or Anthony Chiaffi at the Sam linebacker spot, or uh, they were flying around, knocking down passes. I called their game week four against Ottawa eight weeks ago, two months ago. They were attacking the football in the air like crazy. They were getting all these turnovers. And now you get to a point where it's like, okay, Lucky Whitehead goes out. Offense looks a little bit stagnant. They can't protect Michael Riley as much as they'd like to. They have no interest in running the football. They can't def- you know, pass defended at the line of scrimmage. Their linebacker play has taken a step backwards. Their pass rush doesn't get home nearly as much as it seemed like it did early on. And I hate to say this because I'm calling their game against Toronto this week, but the idea of the imposter syndrome is that you are not worthy of your accomplishments. And I don't know how to frame this other than to say, I feel as though BC is not worthy of the things that I believe they would become. I know that that's a bit of a, a mind twist on the old imposter syndrome idea, yeah. but, but to me, they, at this point, BC are imposters because the way that they played the start of the year, they convinced me. And I tweeted this out as well when they were getting set to have a home stretch where they were playing, I think against Edmonton, Winnipeg and Saskatchewan three weeks in a row. And, and all three of them at home, I think is what it was. And I remember saying, man, they're playing some good football right now. And they've got three games at home and they can really jump up in the standings. What do they do? They lose. It's in convincing fashion in a bunch of those games. Now they're playing in this game on the road in Winnipeg. And it's like, okay, well, these are the, these are the defending champs. They're the team that's at the top of the league. This is a chance to prove that, you know what, we might be able, you might not win, but you got to prove to yourself. We might be able to come in here in in the playoffs in a West final, if we win the uh, West semi and get a victory. Nope. Like they didn't show any of that. Now they've got to go on the dreaded, Toronto Hamilton double if you're a BC Lions player and it's like it's unraveling very quickly for them and I hate to focus on the bad because Winnipeg is so damn good and we never give them enough credit for just making teams look bad we always focus on the negative which I hate but for BC they have been fraudulent in the way that they convinced I think a lot of CFL fans that they and I don't think this is just lucky whitehead related I know that's when that really started to unravel yeah, but, but that's too easy. It's too easy to say, well, that guy's out and therefore the offense falls to pieces. It feels like more than that. They just, they have unraveled consistently throughout the year, which is disappointing because I love their new ownership group and I want them to get wins at home and I want them to excite that fan base and reinvigorate the area with what Canadian football means, but they just haven't done it. They, they haven't been able to execute and they haven't been able to pull off the wins that I thought that they were going to earn. And that's really, really disappointing. If Edmonton were not in this league, BC would be the most disappointing team of 2021. Yeah. Um, To the BC Lions being a kind of wounded animal, I know this is going to sound like it doesn't make sense. Um, I was more impressed. Obviously, I was impressed with the 45 nothing destruction of the BC Lions. Super impressed. But I was, and I think every coach will tell you this, the signs of a great team, a great team, is when you don't play well, yet you still win the football game. Yeah. Right? Yep. Last week against Edmonton, I thought Winnipeg was bad yes. in that game. They did things this in that game that I hadn't seen them do all season long. 
they, they, they looked bad. They played bad. If you were, you know, leveling them up to their standards that they had set earlier this season with all those wins in a row, except that Toronto game, which was weird. Um, you would say, oh, that's not the same team that they're, they're worse. And guess what? Winnipeg still won the game by double digits. So I'm like, oh, that team's, that team's great because to beat them, you're going to have to play a perfect football game, mm -hmm. at least close to damn perfect. You're going to have to hope Winnipeg shoots themselves in the foot, you know, at least one time in that game. Um, and then this game, I just thought Winnipeg started early. They kind of punched BC in the face, you know, in the, in the first quarter. And then after that, BC folded. Um, but for the Bombers, that is a different type of football team. Yeah. And, you know, you, whether it was a Freudian slip by you uh, saying Winnipeg is in the Great Cup or going to be in the Great Cup, I think the entire country feels that. I made a joke in the press box, and it was probably a mean joke, especially with the people in Hamilton wanting to see a Grey Cup in this city for the first time in a while. I just said, can we just save the taxpayer dollars and not have a Grey Cup, give the trophy to Winnipeg, and then we can uh, uh, do a big block party uh, to celebrate the end of COVID? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is mean, but hey, a block party sounds like fun. Uh, exactly. But here's what it boils down to for me and why I say Winnipeg is like you special, unique and going to the great cup. They have to win one football game to be in the great cup. Like this is, I was talking with um, at with, home. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> at home. They're going to be rested. And I was talking with Shinetti about this before the Hamilton Ottawa game this past weekend, where we were talking about Toronto and kind of like what their leadership is like and who steps up and, and I, you know, Matt said, well, you know, there's some flaws with this team. And they've, and I said, Matt, flaws do not matter in the CFL because the playoffs are a sprint. This is not best three out of five. This is not mm -hmm. a long stretch where you have to win a wild card and win a divisional and win a conference and win a, when you're Winnipeg, and this was kind of the cheat code for Hamilton as well, getting into the Grey Cup in 2019, if you win your division, and this might be a huge help to Toronto this year, if you win your division, you are fresher than everybody. You get to relax. You get to understand your opponent better. You get to sit back. And, like, winning your division is such an advantage in the CFL. But regardless, you just have to win one football game. If you play eight quarters of good football, you are a Great Cup champion if you win your division. That is crazy. Every single time that I think about the playoff structure in the CFL, and I'm not asking for, I want every team to get in. I think there should be a wild card and a play-in round and a – no, that's a nine-team no. league. This is the way it's shaped. There's a I don't reason. want to see Edmonton in the playoffs. <laughs> I don't either. Although I did. I was doing a radio interview last week, and somebody suggested to me that Edmonton and Ottawa should play for the first overall pick. And I was like, that sounds like fun. I'm like, I'm, I'm <laughs> Ottawa would win again. Yeah, I'm, I was like, yeah, I'm down. <laughs> I would say that's for the season series, but Ottawa already won the season series. Uh, and so I, I look at Winnipeg and the fact that they have to play one game at home and they're going to be pretty rested. And I'm just like, they're in the great cup. Like that's, that's how this is going to play yeah. out in Calgary. Like, do you have any, if you were to put it percentage chance, and again, if we're wrong about this, then sure, that's fine. But if you would put percentage chance that Calgary or Saskatchewan, the other two playoff teams, I believe that will come out of the West division mm -hmm. would be able to go into Winnipeg and beat them when Winnipeg is rested and playing at home with a crazy home environment what would that percentage chance be? Because for me at this point, it's maximum 20% for either. Oh, of them. I was going to say five. Really? Uh, I, yeah. I'm at that point. Uh, you know, 
we'll get into the Saskatchewan Calgary game, but I don't think for Saskatchewan, you know, there's been a point where Winnipeg is their kryptonite and they can't get over that. Um, and I don't think Duke Williams changes it. I don't think one player is going to change it yeah. unless the dynamic of their entire offense switches. It's, it's not going to change. And then do I trust Bo Levi Mitchell from what I've seen this season? Probably not uh, against that Winnipeg. That Winnipeg defense is, is so good and they're so consistent. And I don't know how you get over that. You're going to have to put up a boatload of points mm -hmm. to even have a shot. And that offense and the MOP discussion is an interesting one because I don't know who you give it to on Winnipeg. I, I seriously don't. I think Zach Kalaros took a stride to the MOP with his performance over the weekend. He only threw the ball 20 times. Yeah. Body of work. completions, three touchdown passes, what, 267 through the year? Body of work, it probably is Zach, but I would go with one of the defensive ends. Like, I'm actually kind of upset that we can't just say Winnipeg defense. Congratulations, MOP, uh, because they're the most valuable thing that exists in this league at this point. So, you know, the way it is, right? Yeah. They're going to cancel each other out. Yeah. And then all those quarterback voters, they're going to vote for Zach. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Uh, again, it's the end of the season. And I'll tell you one thing. And you know the way Zach is uh, from his time being in Hamilton. Yeah. It'd be good if you, you know, he would obviously probably want to win the MOP, but he don't give a damn. No, he doesn't. He just, he wants another great cup ring. And he's also like, he's in a very good place in terms of family and setup and life and all those things. So it's like MOP, it's like, that might be a nice little contract bonus. Maybe that's why we want it. But other than that, it's, yeah. yeah. Uh, let's spend a couple of minutes on Calgary, Saskatchewan here. You mentioned Duke Williams coming in. Uh, interesting that he was very demonstrative, I thought, in this game. But the place I wanted to start as we spend a couple minutes on this game is, my God, the, the two things. One, the matchup at the end of Calgary-Saskatchewan games with Mark Killam, special teams coordinator and assistant head coach. I believe he's assistant head coach. Mark Killam for, Calgar for Calgary against Craig Dickinson of Saskatchewan when it comes to special teams coaching. That is so much fun. Like seeing those two guys trying to, and at the end of the game, there was a shot of them shaking hands and having a quick conversation. I'm like, this is such a small league. They've played together so many times, uh, played against each other so many times that they very obviously have a respect for one another, but they love coaching against each other. It's very obvious to me that they love the cat and mouse game of that. The second thing is, speaking of coaches, I'm amazed how Jason Moss goes at Cody Fajardo. Have you noticed this, Kyle? at all because Jason Moss when Cody Fajardo so there was a sequence this was the the 50 50 ball game a couple of weeks ago right where Cody throws an interception I believe to Jonathan Moxie at the end of the game and in his post-game press conference he says our guys got to win those balls you know we're not getting the 50 50 balls a couple a couple days later Duke Williams ends up signing with Saskatchewan so in that moment the way this played out and again this is just uh, hyper analysis from the outside looking in was that Cody Fajardo was standing on the sidelines with Jason Moss, and there was a shot of the two of them together. And it looks like Moss tells Cody a play, and then Cody questions it. And Moss gets upset about him questioning it. And Cody goes out and subsequently throws the interception. And then you see Cody walking up and down the sideline, pissed off, grabs his helmet, and the camera catches him saying every single time or every damn time, something to that nature. 
And I can tell because I've been a quarterback and I know the relationship and the frustration, the marriage of quarterback and offensive coordinator, mm -hmm. that Cody was frustrated with that call. He didn't like that call. And your job as an offensive coordinator is not to jam your call into that, that quarterback's playbook. It's to give the quarterback what he's most successful with. I think I talked about it here on the show. So there's that. Then in this game, late in the game, fourth quarter, and Moss is right to be upset with this, but this was a really interesting thing that TSN caught on camera. Jason Moss, Cody Fajardo takes a delay of game penalty. And Jason Moss, when he comes to the sideline, is livid and just goes at him. And Cody was saying, it looked like either he was saying, I didn't get the play in time, or Duke didn't know where to line up, or there was something happening there where Cody was trying to explain it, and Moss wasn't having any of it. And Cody is not an argumentative person, but Jason Moss brings a side of Cody Fajardo out on the sidelines that we don't see anywhere else, like anywhere else whatsoever. And I thought the visual this week of Moss getting angry at him, and they went back and forth and back and forth. And about 30 seconds after Moss and Fajardo were arguing on the sidelines about what led to the delay of game penalty, you see Fajardo go over and start to have the conversation with Craig Dickinson. And Dickinson kind of gives them like this, the soothing of, all right, yeah, we got to be better. All right. It's not great, but let's, that's okay. Let's finish the game. Let's, and Moss doesn't have a, he doesn't have an ounce of that in his approach to Fajardo. His approach to Fajardo is like, do this the way I'm telling you to do this. We don't make mistakes and we don't make them in costly situations. And it, that dynamic I find to be so intriguing <laughs> because Fajardo did not ever show that type of emotion on the sideline in 2019 when McAdoo was up in the booth. Now he's got Moss in his ear on the sidelines all the time, and Moss coaches him hard, and it's crazy to watch. Yeah, so I'm struggling to answer the question of, was that a good offensive performance by the Saskatchewan Rough Riders? Um, efficiency, I would say yes, but outcomes, I would say no. And it harkens me back to what I saw in Hamilton this past weekend, right? Jeremiah Masoli, a completion percentage off the charts. What do you have? One completion, uh, one incompletion at halftime. Yeah. And I'm like, and I put out the stats of everything he was doing in the game at halftime. I said, okay, he's, uh, you know, 16 to 17 for this many yards, eight points. <laughs> like at the end of the day, you have to score. Like that's right. the point of the offense. Like, you can do all these checkdowns, get your completion percentage up, but are you putting points on the board? And that's what I'm getting from this game for the Rough Riders. Look, when push came to shove, the Riders were able to get into the end zone with that Brady and, Le uh, Brady and Lenius uh, touchdown uh, later in the game. But I'm looking at this and thinking, is, has Saskatchewan turned a corner offensively? And I don't think they have. You have a, a strange look on your face. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out whether or not Marcel Desjardins got hacked or not. Oh. On, on Twitter. Uh, well, I put out a tweet. How does Marcel Desjardins still have a job after watching the Ottawa Red Blacks be as putrid as they are? Well, uh, let's do this then. I have an announcement to make, and it's very important, and I'm going to say this right now. At Red Blacks GM tweets no longer with red blacks happy to be able to spend real time with my wife nothing better in life wow does he have to change his twitter handle now yeah I mean, 
<laughs> that seems that's kind of like when uh, when Edmonton was announcing that they were the Elks and you had to go to esks.com in order to find out from the press release that they were naming themselves the Elks. It was like, mm, so did like, he get fired or did he quit? Uh, <laughs> who knows? It sounds like he quit, but I don't. He should have quit long but time there's, ago. So punctuation is interesting in this situation because he says. <laughs> No longer with Red Blacks! Exclamation <laughs> mark! That's why you quit. That sounds like a celebration uh, in the punctuation world. It's it's it reminds me of one time Dan Lebetard's show with Stugatz. They were uh, talking during a break, and they came back from the break, and Stugatz said to uh, Dan Lebetard and Mike Ryan, his producer, "Hey, Mike, Marty Schottenheimer passed away," and the entire room went, "What? Why did you say that so happy?" He's like, no, 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 I wasn't saying, yeah, Stu guys, you said that very happily. Hey, Marty Schottenheimer passed away. It was like, you don't say that about, it's, it's weird to not see Marcel come out and just be like, I'm no longer with the Ottawa Red Blacks. I appreciate everyone for my time spent in the organization. Instead, it's no longer with Red Blacks. Or, or the exclamation point was to, is it some sort of surprise? Like, no longer with the <laughs> Red Blacks. <laughs> <laughs> like, nobody saw that coming. Uh, um, yeah, so I guess the uh, Strather broke the camel's back was a 29-point loss. Here's uh, here Just because I have this on file, I want to play this for you. Rick Campbell's veiled statement on Marcel Desjardins in Ottawa as Rick Campbell was leaving the Red Blacks a couple years ago. My best way to phrase it is I just I didn't think the status quo was best for the red blacks going forward and then decisions were made from there is the way i'll i'll put it you got to treat people well you got to treat them right and treat them well and empower them and value them and if you do that people will go through the wall for you if you don't it can make it tougher if you don't they end up in bc being on the coaching staff so. in what world is caleb evans and doug hodges status quo <laughs> it's not uh, even that uh can i just play some marcel desjardins audio as the end of our show is taking a <laughs> twist here today uh here yes. is again this is from rick campbell the day that he left i clipped all of these i might as well use them. in terms of our conversation i mean i found out from mark before i found out from rick and uh, the conversation after the fact was generally that he did not think that our relationship was good enough for him to want to continue in this arrangement um which you know is his opinion i mean the, the relationship has been the same since day one um but obviously the the stress of this season must have played a factor in that uh here is marcel desjardins on why nick arbuckle was not the red blacks quarterback anymore well what it really boils down to is when we uh, did an evaluation of what we thought our best option would be for that position moving forward um not that we didn't think nick was a good option but we felt that if because all the the reports out there were that, um, you know, Toronto was not going to keep uh, Matt Nichols. They weren't going to pay him his bonus. And obviously our coach has a very good rapport and relationship with uh, Matt Nichols. And we felt that if that opportunity arose, then we would at least explore it, um, which it did. And uh, at the end of the day, we just felt it was in our best interest to, to go in that direction. So from a, from a financial standpoint, in terms of what the contract is, uh, from a term standpoint, in terms of uh, Nick, uh, at the time when we were negotiating, uh, they were only willing to do one year, and Matt Nichols uh, committed to two years. So those are all, uh, you know, 
part, parts of the reason for doing it. There's other smaller pieces too. For instance, we have this new category in our league right now for veteran American. So it's, you got your, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not why, um, that's not why that ended up happening though. Uh, the roster construction and all the rest, but, uh, and then this one, th- so that was from TSN 1200 in Ottawa when they were interviewing him after that crazy Arbuckle nickel swap day in free agency just before it. And, uh, <laughs> the question came down, why couldn't you just renegotiate a deal with your quarterback like all the other teams in the league? Well, I'm not going to get into the details of the of the negotiation. Um, at the end of the day, the only thing I'll say is that you know I think in my estimation um, we had that we had to have that number much lower than in a percentage standpoint than what other uh, quarterbacks in the league had made um, or had been asked to take, I guess. And and at the end of the day, I just you know, I was sticking to a number that I felt was reasonable for a player who had limited starts in our league. And last year's circumstances are totally different than this year's circumstances in terms of, you know, availability of players, in terms of uh, uh, what the cap is, all of those things. So, uh, you know, we were we were more than willing to, to let this play out. Um, and it played out, you know, the way it did. And we're not uh, at all... Um, you know, happy with the circumstances as it relates to Nick on the personal side. I feel bad from that standpoint, but that can't be what dictates my decision-making and our decision-making. And now he's not making decisions. Everything that he said in that, then why did you get him in the first place? He's making it sound like, oh, I didn't, oh, this is why we, we didn't re-sign him. But those all should have been a reason why you shouldn't have brought him in in the first place. It's or just uh, re-sign him, and maybe maybe you're the problem. Maybe you were the problem, uh, you know, until today, where you're no longer part of the Red Blacks organization. But I I also had heard that Paul Lapalise was the driving force behind that Arbuckle stuff. So I if that's true, I don't love Desjardins or Desjardins. <laughs> what the heck is Desjardins? <laughs> uh, I don't love Marcel Desjardins being the one that ends up taking the fall for that if that's true like that seems unfair to him if that is in fact true but I will also say this like he is I mean we can make fun of this season and the difficulty of the quarterbacking spot with Dominique Davis and Jonathan Jennings in 2019 but I I I just in terms of his legacy as the Ottawa Red Blacks general manager they did win the Grey Cup right yeah like he won it with Henry Burris. He helped craft that roster. He was part of the expansion draft. Uh, I mean, it's it's not a good ending. It very rarely is in professional football. But to get that championship in 2016, I think should be the thing that sticks with him more than any of this the stank that's at the end of this run for him as Redlegs GM. I would tend to agree with you if he wasn't also in charge for whatever reason, everything falling apart. Trevor Harris leaves, Greg Ellingson leaves, Sir Vincent Rogers leaves, Rick Campbell leaves. And it's like all of this stuff, it had to stem from some place in the organization. And hearing Rick Campbell saying the status quo wasn't good enough anymore might have been the same reason why Trevor Harris left. And because Trevor Harris leaving, everybody else followed him. I've talked to uh, a CFL source. Uh, I just, I don't want to out this person for saying what they said because it's not necessarily the nicest thing about Marcel, but I did talk to somebody about a month ago uh, when I was covering the Ottawa Toronto game, we were talking about roster development and the way that this stuff is going to go forward. And this person said, you know, Ottawa is one of the very best places in Canada 
not just to play football, but to live. <laughs> it's a beautiful place. They've got an incredible stadium. They've got great facilities. They've got a passionate fan base. So why don't all of the free agents want to go to Ottawa? Yeah. And this person said, I think you know why. Ooh. Okay. That and is damning. So, and that's, so, and maybe that got to the higher ups at OSEG or, you know, whoever has to make these decisions. But uh, if, if that is in fact true, because I don't know that to be true, because I'm not sitting in negotiating rooms. Like, yep. I'm not going to act like I understand the internal dynamics of all of that. But if that is indeed true, then this decision was likely made because they want to open up more opportunities to acquire talent quickly. And they believe that Marcel maybe being there might've been an impediment to that based if you're reading the tea leaves of the statement that that person passed along to me as I speak in grand generalities. But um, I, I mean, I got respect for that guy. I think he did a very good job for them at various points, struggled down the stretch. We don't really know the full truth of how this is all shook out behind the scenes of who wanted what and when and how, but Ottawa is a great place to live. It's a fantastic place to play football. And if they start signing free agents left, right, and center going into this offseason, you are going to – you're going to connect the dots and say, yeah. what changed? Okay, people want to play for Lapo, and maybe they didn't, didn't like the potential of playing for Marcel as the general manager, and maybe they like this as a more attractive destination going forward. And that, we're not going to know that until late spring. Like, because free agency day itself in February won't tell that story. It will yeah. be about people signing from all over the place. Negotiation list people, uh, NFL free agents, CFL free agents. If we get to March and this roster looks much different, that's going to, fairly or unfairly to Marcel, that's going to tell the story. Yeah. Uh, if you're Paul Lapolice now, the biggest, priority number one for the Red Blacks moving forward, get a quarterback or at least have some confidence in a quarterback week one, because mm -hmm. that's not the case uh, this year. And now you can see the remnants of it um, moving forward for that organization until, and again, I don't know who's going to be the general manager, incoming general manager. We can, I feel every time, you know, a general manager gets uh, fired or leaves, we have a conversation of, okay, who's next up and who's going to be the general manager. Um, I don't know. Does Drew Alleman get that interview? Um, potentially. Um, does he want that job? I don't know. Uh, I don't. Same thing with Berkey. I mean, it's they're both exactly. co-manager co of football operations and director of whatever, like the right? lo longest title in the world. If one of those two guys wants a shorter title, then maybe that's the chance. Uh, seven fifty-one Monday morning. A text from my girlfriend. It's a screenshot of the tweet that Marcel Desjardins. <laughs> Um, she is locked in. Just on got C fired. CFL no, it's culture. every time she gets like a she. So she she signs up for like breaking news. Oh, so okay. anytime like a breaking, and apparently this has gotten some wind now that <laughs> Marcel Desjardins is done. She just says, "Is this drama?" I'm gonna respond. It's been <laughs> drama for three seasons for <laughs> <laughs> three stuff. years. <laughs> uh, all right, let's wrap up this thing. Sorry to anybody who came here hoping to get an in-depth Calgary Saskatchewan recap. I opened up. Uh, my Twitter in hopes of finding something much different than that. And, uh, and that's what I was left with. So. Yeah. The only thing I'll say is if you weren't sick of the uh, Stampeders and Riders, well, it's going to happen again in a couple of weeks in the playoffs. <laughs> <laughs> get ready. Get ready. Let's go. A little urgency. Here we go. Let's go. We're almost out of here. This is the three minute warning brought to you by.
Uh, it's brought to you by making sure that your movie set guns are not actually loaded or dangerous. What oh. the hell? What the hell happened with Alec Baldwin? Yeah, that, that was sad. That's terrifying. Like, are you kidding me? On, so, a set, on a set of a Western? I don't know any of the details. I haven't read. I've just seen Alec Baldwin killed a person, injured another with a essentially fake gun that he was told was safe that was not. What is that? So from what I've read, the empty rounds that they fire on movie sets, they're still actual bullets, but... Oh, oh good. No, no, no. no. <laughs> maybe maybe I was wrong in that. So the front of the bullet has like plastic and paper compressed into it. Okay. And when it fires, that is what makes the flash of the gun. And that's why it looks real. And apparently that's what she got hit with. She got hit with that because apparently at point blank range, it is still very dangerous. That's my thing. If it's still very dangerous, what the hell are we doing? What are, what are we doing? Of weapons on, on movie sets. And my, my question is, how does this not happen more often considering how many fake, quote-unquote, guns there are on television and movie sets? I know. It's, well, it's, I'm pretty sure there's like, hey, only put the weapon in somebody's vicinity when they need it. Apparently, he was like walking around with it and hit. The, and he was, I don't know. It's a, it's a mess. It's I feel terrifying. so sorry for that that woman's I family. She had a long career in, in cinematography, and I think she was a director of cinematography or whatever. It's brutal, brutal. Anyway, sorry, sorry to bring the show on down on a sad note at the end. I was just, I saw that story over the weekend. I was like, what, how is this even possible? So yeah. uh, that's going to do it for us on the show today. He is at Kyle underscore Mellow underscore. I'm at TSN underscore Marsh. We are Marsh and Mellow here on Canadian Football Perspective for you. Hope you enjoyed the show today. What do you, uh, what do you think I end up titling this podcast kyle i could do week 12 recap i was thinking maybe desjardin <laughs> oh i like that okay desjardin. all right huh? done all right desjardin uh, i'll we'll, get some retweets we'll go with that uh, have yourselves a great monday everybody thank you for listening as always don't forget to give us a follow on twitter and instagram at cf perspective canadian football perspective uh great week of uh, shows lined up for you here oua show is live now got all canadian coming up tomorrow where they'll announce the oua players of the week and discuss more around week 12 and myself and derek taylor have the breakdown coming up for you on wednesday or now have yourselves a great day and we will talk coming up next week right here on marsh and mellow Hey everybody, McConaughey here. Look, I mean, I'm uh, as surprised as everybody else by this outcome. Let's see if we can make some lemonade out of this lemon that we're in the middle of. Turn a red light into a green light. Just keep living.